All right, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 32 to 43. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn this along. Let's see if we can unpack some things that we see in the text over here. Um, those, those of you who've been walking with us, I hope that you've been enjoying the... Uh, I've certainly enjoyed it, just stepping through uh, slowly but surely through the verses in the book of Acts, seeing how the church develops, grows, how the uh, dunamis, the, the power of the Spirit works in God's people, and starts to penetrate the world as Jesus Christ had predicted would happen, um, the spread of His kingdom. Um, in chapter 7, we see the persecution on the Christians reaches the extreme, right? We see it gradually develop as Satan is trying to block this ministry from progressing and the word from making it out into the world. And chapter 7, Stephen is ultimately killed. Now, just for those who haven't been around, you see it clearly if you take a little bit of a step back, because I think many of us grew up reading the text. But if you take a step back and you just look at the whole story, you can see behind the scenes how Satan is, is trying to block this, this, this ministry from going forward. He starts first with floggings, and then he starts with warnings on the disciples, and then he throws them into prison. And it intensifies, the persecution intensifies as the message the power of the message um, is more successful. Up to the point where it's like Satan says, um, listen here, if you guys are not going to listen to floggings and beatings and warnings and imprisonments, then I'll just kill one of you. And then maybe that will keep you quiet and that will stop you from going forward. Well, that we know didn't work, right? Because chapter 7 ends with Stephen being killed. And yes, the, the Christians are scared and they do run. That's what we see in chapter 8. They scatter, they run away, they are, they are scared, they run away from Jerusalem, but they take the message with them, and wherever they go, they preach this message, and so the message spreads, and one of the key players that Luke seems to zoom in, one of the key guys in chapter 8 that goes about preaching is who? Philip, sorry brother, yeah. F Philip is, is the guy who preaches in Samaria, and then he's brought down to the road that goes down to Damascus, and there he preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch, and we sp I think that's the last lesson that I spoke to you about. The other were video recordings. So we're in chapter 9 then, where, the, where, where Luke now zooms into another individual. He moves, from, he moves away from Philip, who's preaching the gospel, back to the great persecutor from chapter 7, and that's Paul. And he zooms in on Paul, and now what happens to Paul? He, he looks at, at, at Philip, who um, makes the kingdom grow, and now he zooms into Paul, who tries to break the kingdom down, which is, which is Saul, rather. Let me use that word, but you know who I'm talking about. And so the great persecutor is converted, and suddenly there's peace in the church, because Paul is converted. The text says, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. The church is growing. The church is at peace. Um, it's the calm, shall we say, after the storm. The Christians had endured a lot of nonsense. And now it's just, it's like, it's like God is telling us, look, um, it's, just, it's just calm and, and relaxed in the church. Now, Luke is going to illustrate this happening in two towns. 
That's where we're going tonight. We're going to two towns where Luke is going to give us an example of how this happens, how there's sort of peace in these towns and the Christians are flourishing and how the church increases in numbers. And that seems to be what, what Luke does. <laughs> he gives us a general explanation of something and then he says, okay, let me give you two examples. Boom, boom. Like, for example, in, in chapter 8, he says, well, um, wherever these Christians went, they preached the gospel. Okay, let me give you an example. Philip, he went down to Samaria and he preached there. Now we have, at, at the end of chapter 9, verse 31, the church is having a time of peace, um, and the disciples are increasing. And let me give you some examples. And he gives us two examples for the text for um, tonight. I want us to return just quickly to Philip for a moment. Chapter 8 and verse 40. Philip... However, this is directly after he preached uh, to the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, he went with him in his chariot, and then he stopped at water, and, and he got baptized. I hope that you're with me. If you're not, just go read that again. In verse 40 says, Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. And I've got a little map for you over there. Let me just see if this bad boy works. Yeah. So, do you see down there, there's Azotus. Okay, that's where Philip appeared after he baptized the eunuch. Now, where is he going, the text says? He's going to Caesarea. So, from there, he's going to Caesarea. On the way, you have Lydda and Joppa. At least those are two towns that we can see in the map. So maybe he traveled from Azotus to Lydda, and then to Joppa, and then to Caesarea. But the text says that he, he preached the gospel in all the towns, from Azotus to Caesarea. And so we suspect that as he um, went to these towns, and he preached the gospel, some people were converted. Some people came to Christ. So they were most probably converted by Paul, um, uh, by, sorry, by Philip in these um, two towns. And it seems like Peter decided to go from Jerusalem to visit those two towns. Maybe not just those two towns, but he heard, hey, there's, there's some Christians in those two towns. So he packed up, packs up his bags. Remember, there's a time of peace now, and he decides to go visit the Christians in those two towns. And that's what's recorded for us here. There's already Christians. Those Christians were most probably uh, taught the gospel by Philip. And that's why I've entitled uh, the lesson for tonight, um, sorry, Peter brings the second wave. Because Philip brought the first wave of the gospel, and now Peter is going through the same towns. And let's see what happens as Peter meets these people. Let's go, verse 32. <coughs> As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Just a few thoughts from my side and, um, as we unpack this. First, the first thing that struck me is, I've, I've highlighted it in red there, is the term for the Lord's people. 
The term for the Lord's people that Peter went to go, and, and Luke deliberately records it like this, and I, I try to understand those types of things and wonder why Luke would specifically use this word, because he didn't use the word Christian. Peter didn't go and visit the Christians. That's not the Greek word used there. The Greek word is hagios. Hagios means saints. Went to go visit the saints. A saint is somebody that is sacred and holy, and it's a blameless person. And I find that intriguing that the Holy Spirit and Luke would write that about normal people like us. Because in your mind, when you hear the word saint, what do you think? You think Socrates. You think the, the greatest people you can imagine. And, and, and it's, it's, just, it's just interesting for me that he, that he says, just uses that term, that that's what we are. And perhaps that's the way that God views us. Not, we might not view one another as saints. Certainly if you're sitting next to your wife, you're probably not thinking she's a saint. But God thinks that we are saints, which is absolutely um, incredible. Um, I, and and it, it doesn't mean that, that we are uh, perfect. I read some quotes this week that said, the saints did not begin well, but they ended well. I like that. No saint begins well. He ends well. It's not who you were. It's who you become when you get to, to meet Christ. Every saint has a past. And every sinner has a future. And so we move from sinner to saint. Um, we are seen by the Holy Spirit as saints. Forgiven, redeemed, clean, saved, and holy. That struck me. The other thing that struck me here is the play on words with regards to bed. The word bed. The original is interesting. It says, this man kept his bed for eight years. And when I read that, I thought to myself, okay, so he made up his bed for eight years. He kept his bed for eight years. Well, for eight years, his bed was his living quarters. It was his special place. In other words, for eight years, him and his bed had a very special relationship. Well, he's paralyzed. Then the Greek says that when Peter healed him, Peter said to him, make up your bed. It's like Peter is saying, okay, you're done with your bed now. Move on. Separate um, from it. He was no longer bound to his bed. He was set free from it. His bed was his best friend and his only place of rest for eight years. But now he is set free. Can you imagine what that feels like? For eight years to be bound to this place probably praying daily just to be released from that place. I had an interesting experience with Jason last week. We, um, we went back to um, that, the place where we lived before we came to the States. And I had to take a photo of him there standing at the house where we lived. Because it was, it was just sort of evidence. It's just interesting for me, like, this is the place for three years where we slept at night. And every night, me and Alfredo would pray. We'd say, Lord, please, come on. Take us across the ocean. Take us where we need to be. Three years. And sometimes, you need to take a photo, maybe in your mind, of the place where God has saved you from. I think if this guy could just have a photo of his bed. Can you imagine him standing up? <laughs> he can stand, and he turns back and he says, let me just take a photo. Let me never forget the place where Christ took me from. 
Because sometimes we just move on. God, God blesses us and he, he takes us out of really rough places. And, and we never look back and say, thank you, Lord, for where we've, where we've come from. But I've got that photo. I'm going to keep that. Sometimes we need to take photos of the places where Jesus helped us out of. <coughs> the text says, everyone, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him return to the Lord. And you might ask the question, well, what is, what is Sharon? Um, Sharon uh, refers to what they call Champagne country between Lydda and Joppa. If we go back to the map, it's just a farming area. And so people in the farming community also saw and uh, saw this man and turned to the Lord. Three things to mention here. First of all, Jesus is the great physician. I think we all agree with that. Lydda apparently was a, ch was, was, was a town famous for its Jewish doctors. And I want you to picture this. I want you to think about this. For eight years, the doctors in this town could not help this guy. He wasn't born paralyzed. We don't know what, what he had, some disease or whatever. But can you imagine how those doctors felt when they saw this man being healed? And it's sort of a lesson for me is that, yes, we, can, we, can, we need to listen to doctors. But at the end of the day, we need to trust God more. Do God can do things doctors can't. Even when we were back in South Africa, um, it, was, it was nice for me to be able to share with the church on the Sunday morning just how, how good God has been to us. I, I, I couldn't reach, I couldn't explain to you. We just didn't have time. But when we were in South Africa, an educational psychologist, remember, said that Micah needs to go on medication, on Ritalin or whatever the case may be, because he, he was diagnosed as having ADHD. And we didn't know how to, st we didn't want that because we saw the consequence, we saw the, the side effects of using the, those medications and that it leads to depression in teenage years. And so we, we, we grappled with that. We came to the States, the kid went to school here. The first time we have a meeting with the, with the teacher, the teacher says, this kid's incredible. No problems. It's like, what? How can a doctor say that? We shift countries, suddenly the kid is fine. And that just proved to me once again that at the end of the day, doctors don't know everything. They don't. They try. But at the end of the day, we have to rely on the great physician. He's still the great physician. So we can, we can, we can use doctors, but remember, they're not God. Jesus is the great physician. The second thing is this. We are co-workers in God's service, which is beautiful for me about this story. Read with me this text. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 9. What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. The reason why I'm elevating this text is because Philip came in to this town. He preached the gospel, and some people obeyed the gospel, but not everybody. Some people didn't really believe. Then Peter comes in later, and he does this miracle, and the text says everybody believed and turned. It's like God had decided to use Philip for some, and then he brings Peter and he says, okay, you're going to seal the deal, and there's other people that you're going to bring. in." So, so the Lord is assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, 
but God has been making it grow. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's, um, you're God's building. So Philip sowed seed, Peter watered it, Peter saw the seed sprout that Philip watered, or the seed that he had sown. What you have sown, this is very important, what you have sown in the lives of people, you might never see. We don't see in the text that Philip saw this. Philip probably wasn't even there. But he contributed to this growth that took place in this town. There's an impact that you have made in people's lives. You don't even know about it. One of the um, striking things for me about South Africa is that the Afrikaans people, my, my cultural heritage, are extremely um, Christian-like people. It's in our culture. There is no paganism in my Afrikaans culture. We have lukewarm Christians. And when I say Christians, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that they... They, they, they believe in the Bible the same way as we do. They are from a reformed background. But you can go to an Afrikaans person and ask him, do you believe in God? 99% of the time they say yes. It's built into their fiber. And I've been wondering about this. Why? Because I know they've got lots of churches on every street corner, but they're all empty. The Afrikaans people, they don't go to church anymore. They used to, but not anymore. The previous generation. And then I remember... I remember from a young age, in the Afrikaans tradition, that God would be preached in schools. The headmaster would preach the word and read from the Bible in schools. Every day as school started, the Bible would be read. It's part of, of the culture. Those people who were my teachers, they were not Christians like I understand a Christian, but they always sowed the seeds in the classroom. And those seeds produced fruits in the lives of people. It produced fruits in my life. The first fruits, in many ways, of my relationship with Christ was sown, not by people in the Church of Christ. It was sown by Dutch Reformed ladies in my classroom that didn't even believe uh, in, in the essentiality of baptism, for example. God can use anybody to sow seed into our lives. God has used you to sow seeds into people's lives. And that makes us part, co-workers of God in this great vineyard that we call planet Earth. So, always remember, sowing seed is worth it, even if you never see it sprout. Thirdly, what I find interesting is what, what this verse says there at the end is, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw Him. Who? Aeneas saw him and turned to God. That caught my eye. It's, um, that people see us and turn to God. People can see you. You are the signpost pointing people to God. By the way that Christ has transformed your life, because that's what happens. Well, look at this guy. He's, he's he was paralyzed. He's standing now. It's like, so God uses People to point people to God. 
God wants to use us similarly. We are projectors. We are image bearers. We'll get back to that at the end. All right, let me pause there. Thoughts, comments, questions? Disagreements? Not allowed. Just joking. Can we go on? Okay, do this. Verse 32. Oh, no, this is actually not 32, sorry. It's 36. Now, this is the next town. What happens in the next town? In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. What a beautiful name. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come, come at once. Let's just pause there for a moment. So the word Dorcas, uh, um, Tabitha, means gazelle. And apparently it was quite common to name girls after beautiful animals, like a gazelle. I like that. And what's interesting is what is she called? She's not called a hagios. She's called a mataitais, which is a disciple. Once again, she's not called a Christian. She's called a disciple. I think it's significant that we read this in a text. It's interesting that we always, I mean, it's generally in public, it's like we call one another Christians. But we don't see that in the text. They're disciples, they are saints. So she's a matetes, she's a student. She was a godly woman. It reminded me um, of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, where Paul um, actually says that women are to make themselves beautiful, not with braided hair and you know external things, but with good deeds. So this was a pretty woman. She was pretty, made pretty through her beauty. She was seen through her work and care and her compassion for the poor. Can, you can imagine in your mind what type of a woman she is. And what I find so interesting is that this woman that is described by the Holy Spirit is, as an incredible woman that works hard and cares for people, she dies. It's like, God, what? I mean, really, you're in control of when people die, right? Well, I mean, why would you let your servants die that, that adds so much value to other people? And I've seen this numerous times in my life as well. She's such a great servant, but dies. And you ask the question, why God? I had a very close friend who was a mentor and that went with me to Bible college. And they, they, they were, he had two other friends, and I gave them nicknames. Um, You've heard me say before, Brother Bear or Mama Bear. And it's just a, it's an enduring term for me. Because a bear, well, at least when you live in Africa, a bear looks like a little cuddly dude. It's like, oh, give me an hour. You come here and then you realize there's a stinky, fat killing machine. But Bear was like, and there were these three guys. And the, I gave them each a bear nickname. There was Snoo Bear. It's an Afrikaans, which means snow bear. Because he was like gray and white and lots of hair, you know. So he was snow bear. And then there was, uh, the, the, the other one was um, boss bear, which means bush bear. Because he was very hairy. 
Looked like he came out of the bush. He's like, like lots of hair, bush bear. And then the other guy was Ben Bear, because his name was Benedict. And, you know, I didn't have, you know, he looked normal. So it was just Ben Bear. I'll just give him his name. And those three, the three bears were always together. And they were just spiritually on fire, and they're always connected with each other. And we'd have men's breakfast, and they would just smash the singing and just be close to each other, always sharing life. And then the one morning, Bush Bear, the hairy guy, went to go play squash. And he died of heart attack right there in the squash court, just like this. And he was the life of those three. He was just always positive and happy. Even still today, I see his, his wife post videos and photos of him. And he was just an incredible life of the church. And I, I could see over weeks, months, and years how this affected, how his death affected the other two guys' lives. And, he's, and, and I, I remember I used to sit there and think to myself, Lord, why would you take a person that has such a profound impact in your church away that you can see it saps the spiritual life of the people around them because of the absence of his presence? And many times that has happened to me in my life. I don't know if it's happened in your life. You ask Christian, but Lord, why? I mean, you could have prevented this. And I continually am just reminded of this text. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are just way beyond us ever being able to understand what He's doing. And that leaves us in a point where we just have to trust Him, that the judge of all the earth will always do what is right. And he'll do what is best, and he'll do what is good, regardless of what we see. Now, Peter, in this text, seems to have been called. Perhaps they called him before she died. I don't know. Up to this point, the apostles have not performed a resurrection yet. Let's read what happens. Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with him. And so these widows are surrounding him. And you can imagine they're holding these these clothing pieces in their hands, which I think was a big deal. She'd work hard on these things. There's there's, this value placed in them. We we arrived at, at my mom's house, my mom every day when I talk to her, she's like crying, oh, I miss you, oh, I want to see you, and kiss and hugs, and oh, she loves her boy, that's the message I get over the WhatsApp video calls, me and Jason arrive in South Africa, we specifically decide we're going to go to her house, she's made us food, I'm excited, going to eat mother's food, I've been, been eating the, you know, the American stuff, I'm happy, mother's stuff. I especially rush away from church earlier, from all the people that want to talk. I'm going to Mama's house. I arrive there. Guess what Mama's busy doing? She's busy with the knitting machine, making stuff. And I say to Jason, what's wrong with this woman? I come all the way from America. She goes, yeah, we'll eat just now. I'm like, don't you want to talk to me? Don't you miss your boy? She's busy making placemats. You know, would you put your plate on? Angela. 
they're fabulous. I'm like, now, to be honest with you, I don't care a dime about placemats. But what was she doing in her mind? I'm sure Angela appreciates that because she knows, hey, here's a person that physically sits down and makes me something. At least she had a machine. Can you imagine in the first century, Dorcas is busy making clothing for widows. Widows were poor. They didn't have money. Dorcas didn't throw money at them. She worked hard with her fingers, made them clothes to wear. These women are standing there showing Peter, look, look, look. This woman spent 20 hours on me. When last does somebody spend 20 hours on you? Made something for you. Incredible. You can imagine how their hearts are feeling. Now here's a question. Peter is in this upstairs room. There's a dead lady. He's never met her. What do you think is going through his mind? And these women are crying. They're showing the garments. What do you think is going through his mind? What would you do? Let me tell you, as a preacher, I've been in a few situations. I've been at a number of deathbeds. I've been at a number of dead bodies. Those are strange times. You don't know what to do. Based on what we read in the text, I want to make a suggestion. I think Peter was well equipped for this moment. If you want to go study something nice, go read the book of Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Remember that Jesus walked for three years with his disciples. Why did he do that? He was preparing them for the day that he would leave them. That is the mark of true leadership. You've got to work yourself out of your position. That's great leadership in the kingdom. In Mark chapter 5, You find a very intriguing story. Not only do you find the legion that is living in the tombs, the guy that's got 6,000 demons, and that, that is a story on its own. But Jesus leaves the place where the demon possessed man is. He goes across the lake of Genesis, and he lands on the shore. And as he lands on the shore, there's a crowd of people that surround him. And as he's trying to break through the people, there's a woman that sneaks through and touches the hem of his garment. You know the story, right? And if you go read the text, it says that she had been suffering with hemorrhaging for 12 years. And while this commotion is going on and this woman is being healed and, and this, uh, Jesus is trying to figure out who touched me, there's a, there's a guy whose gods arrive or whose soldiers arrive. And that man's name is Jairus. And they bring a message. They say, please come quickly. Our master, Jairus, his, his, his daughter has just died. And guess how old that daughter was? This is the interesting part. She was 12 years old. And it's interesting that you have this old woman who's been suffering for 12 years, and she suddenly gets life through Jesus. And it seems like if you read the text, it's almost at exactly the same time that the little girl that was sick for 12, age age 12, that was sick, died. And so when one got life, the other one got death. It's like you you have this old woman that has been suffering for 12 years, and then you got the, the, the daughter of a wealthy man who's had a great life for 12 years, but she dies. And a beautiful lesson, just that's what I'm saying, go, 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 go play with that. A beautiful lesson just of how everybody needs Jesus. Whether you're wealthy or not, whether you're young or you're old, everybody needs Christ. 
Beautiful, beautiful story. But then what happens is Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. And I think that little girl is also in the upstairs room. And Jesus takes all the people out of the room. He says, everybody go out, except the parents, which is understandable, and Peter, James, and John. And then Jesus says, Talitakum, little girl, I say to you, get up. Do you think that was going on in Peter's mind as he's in this upstairs room with a dead person? Of course. That's why Jesus invited him in. Peter, James, and John, the three closest to Jesus, they had seen how Jesus raised somebody from the dead. He knew exactly what to do. And I think that is playing through his mind. And he's saying, thank you, Jesus, that you gave me that experience with you. I think Jesus was a tremendous teacher, tremendous mentor, and he was they were 100% ready for whatever would come. Thank you, Jesus. Well, what does the text say? Peter sent them all out. Of course he's going to send them out. He saw his master Jesus do it. Okay, so point number one. Let, let me think that. How do you resurrect somebody from the dead? Okay, let's send the people out quickly. That's the first point. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed. Okay, well, I'm not Jesus. So let me talk to Jesus just quickly before I do this. He prays, turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. Exactly the same type of phraseology that Jesus used. Talitha kum, little girl, get up. He does the same thing. He says her name and says, get up. Power. She opened her eyes. And seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the saints, Hagios again. Once again, not Christians. He calls for the saints, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. He's like, let me call these people. Come, you guys who were crying, you guys with the... Come, see, she's alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. <coughs> When I was younger and I read that in the Bible, I thought, well, this guy lies in the sun the whole day. He's tanning. <laughs> As is the case when people rise from the dead, many people believed and came to Christ. The text for tonight closes off with an interesting situation. Imagine for a moment. If you were Peter, who would you spend the next week with? Tabitha, wouldn't you? I'd love to chat to a person who died and is alive now, especially a good one like this. Hey, don't you want to, now that you're alive, you're probably strong and healthy, don't you want to make me a garment quickly? I'll sit with you. We can talk about it. How does it feel to die? Well, Peter hangs out with somebody very unlikely. He decides to hang out with a guy by the name of Simon the Tanner, which is a very insulting person to hang around with. I read some up about this. I just want to read it to you. People avoided tanners. All good. Oh, yes. Thank you, Brother Bear. Did you go by? What a wife. Thank you, baby. Baby, baby, baby. So, this is what they say. People avoided tanners. Ancient zoning laws often put tanneries 
at the edge of town or beyond at a site dictated by the prevailing winds. A tanner treated animal hides with foul mixtures of animal and human waste or with harsh chemicals. Sometimes what flesh remained on a hide was allowed to rot. It was a hands-on trade and the stench would permeate the clothes, skin and house of the tanner. So he was a stinky fellow. Jews ordinarily shunned tanners. Tanning was not forbidden in the Old Testament. Leather was used for clothing, packs, saddles, sandals, and tents, including the tabernacle, for centuries the hub of Israel's worship life. But dead animals and other features of the work left a tanner dirty, smelly, and often ceremonially unclean. By custom, Tanners came to be treated as outcasts from polite society and were pushed to the fringes of Jewish religious life. So to befriend a tanner was not a common thing. Which is, I think, exactly why Luke is mentioning this. Because you will see in the next chapter next week that Peter is starting to come into contact with what God says about Gentiles. That which is unclean. And you know what happens in chapter 10, right? As unclean animals are allowed to be eaten by Jews. And I think this is the beginning of that. It seems to me like Peter defied the status quo of Jewish life by accepting those whom Jews traditionally rejected. Once again indicating to us that when Christ comes into your life, the way that you view people changes. The title of the lesson tonight is Peter Brings the Second Wave. The second wave of the power of the Holy Spirit. Philip brought the first, Peter brings the second wave with his great miracles. And often I wonder, and this is a discussion for someday, I often wonder what wave are we at? Because the gospel has been preached over and over and over and over again in our towns. Like Sweet Home with its 34 churches. Sometimes the, the, the message of the cross has really been watered down. And, you know, it feels like there's nothing we can do to inspire people to... I mean, look at what happens in these towns. What, what can we do about our town, about Christianity in our town? And maybe we can just start by praying for it. Praying for a thousandth wave. Maybe that's where the word revival comes in. I don't know. We, we need to pray. I just think it's, I see it in my own life. It's so easy to become complacent about your faith. You need the spiritual injection. And only God and His Spirit can make that happen. So, just some thoughts. It is better to be called a saint or a disciple than a Christian. <coughs> I try to use these words instead of using Christian. A saint is what you look like through God's eyes. It's a precious word. And it's precious to call one another saints. It's precious. And a disciple is what you do. It's, it's, it's a verb. That's to say, you're a student of Jesus, you want to be like him. Secondly, what should people see in us that will inspire them to turn to the Lord? How can we, how can we 
to live our lives in a way that when people see us, they want to know who our God is. I suggest the most powerful way you can live your life is to live a life of grace. Give people what they don't deserve. When people are, are rude, be friendly. When people criticize you, smile and bless them. It's hard, but that sets us apart. That is something that can only come from the Lord of grace and His throne of grace. And that will make people look up to our God. Thirdly, water, wherever you go, you never know what seeds have been planted there. Continue watering wherever you go. Fourthly, what do you leave behind in the hands of people if you died today? The beautiful story about Dorcas is that these people were standing by her dead body, holding in their hands her work. Incredible. When you come to the end of your life, what do you leave behind? What stays behind? How would you package that? How would you, you know, contain that? It doesn't have to be physical. What would it be? Are you proactively doing things that benefit people's lives? And lastly, the person everyone rejects, as is the case with Simon the Tanner, might just be the potential best friend you will ever make. Sometimes it's good to draw closer to those whom everybody rejects. All right, those are my thoughts. I made it 